Hi, de ho there, all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Can you believe it? I've actually finished my short film documentary, Little Mixed Sunshine, the first installment of my Mixed America documentary series. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, on the off chance some of you are relatively new to the show and haven't followed the progress of the film, just go to daredreamer.fm and under the Radio Film School submenu, select Shooting Sunshine. That'll bring up all the episodes that track the film's progress. For now, suffice it to say, there's been a lot of drama and angst to get this film completed. And today on the show, we have recurring guests, good friends, and talented filmmakers in their own right, JD and Yolanda, who have played a key part of that journey on the podcast. But before we get to the podcast, I just want to give a quick shout out to Song Freedom, who is a show sponsor again. When you need to find legal music to use in your productions, go to songfreedom.com slash radio to unlock a free standard license worth $30. We thank Song Freedom for their support. Okay, without further ado, on with the show. When I was a teen and later in my college years, I was the quintessential hopeless romantic. I mean, I was the guy who wrote poetry at the drop of a hat. Romantic prose would ooze and drip from my mouth like honey. And this may be no surprise, but my poetry was usually injected with just a tad bit of melodrama. One time I wrote a poem to this girl that I had a crush on because I felt she betrayed me. So it was kind of like a you betrayed me kind of poem. We were really good friends and her boyfriend was kind of a jerk. So I took her out dancing expecting her to fall in love with me. And I told her I wanted to kiss her and she said no because she like, you know, had a boyfriend and all. Then she goes and tells her boyfriend what I said and the dude confronted me. Now, if you're wondering what any of this has to do with Mix in America, just be patient. I will be making a point. Anyway, so I'm like first heartbroken and second, I'm really pissed. So I write here one of these aforementioned melodramatic poems. It was such a profound moment in my young romantic life that to this day I still have it memorized. It was called, It is the Cause. <clears throat> it is the cause. It is the cause. It is the cause for which my cold, dark heart beats so. It is the cause. But it shall not be a subtle change like the passing of water to ice that shall overcome this betrayed soul of mine. No. In its stead, it shall be quick and ruthless, like the stone-curdling glare of Medusa's gaze. It is the cause of death. Death to passion. Death to romance. Death to love. Death to all I am and long to be. For only in this death will I finally elude heartbreak and betrayal. You are the cause. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like I said, I was melodramatic. That poem was actually inspired by the famous soliloquy from Shakespeare's Othello. If you recall your high school or college literature class, Othello was a Moor, 
who was black, and love with Desdemona, who was white. It dealt with issues of racism, love, jealousy, and betrayal. So it was the perfect inspiration for my poem because this particular girl was not black. So much of my high school and college years, I felt trapped between two worlds. I went to a primarily white-slash-Asian high school, and I belonged to this co-ed business fraternity in college that was also predominantly white and Asian. So throughout most of my formative years, I was one of the few, if not only, black people in the circles of my closest friends. There was a time during my undergraduate years at UC Berkeley where I had a profound and core-shaking racial identity crisis. I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. Among blacks, I was the proverbial Oreo. Black on the outside, white on the inside. I'm sure you've heard that stereotype. Among my white and Asian friends, I felt like despite how respected I was, you know, like I frequently held high-level officer positions and group leadership positions, I still felt like an other. I wondered if the reason why I was always relegated to the friend zone was because of my race. I even felt that at home sometimes. My stepdad, who's Jamaican, would sometimes tease me when I went out with a white or an Asian girl. He rarely, if ever, saw me go out with a sister. And I think that bothered him. But it's also understandable. You see, he's extremely light-skinned. In fact, back in the 60s when he was in the army, he was passing. Passing is when an African-American or some other ethnic minority is so light-skinned they actually can pass as white. And his fellow white enlisted men would often tell racist jokes around him, not knowing that he was actually black. So I'm sure that had an effect on his psyche. Have you ever felt in your life so utterly and totally alone? So why am I sharing all this with you? Why am I being way more personal than I probably should, as I alluded to in last week's season finale? Because I think it's important for you to understand the context of my personal background as it relates to race. It's important to know what things I've seen, what words I've heard, and what relationships I've had that have made me the person I am today. And it will paint a clearer picture for you why, one, this particular story of my biracial daughter hits home closer than you might expect for a brother who's relatively dark-skinned, and two, why it's been so important for me to finish this film and tell this story. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School, A Filmmaker's Journey. And this is part one of the finale of our Shooting Sunshine miniseries. It was the summer of 1987, in between my freshman and sophomore years at UC Berkeley. My best bud at the time was this white dude named Sean. Sean was actually slightly older, but enrolled in college late. He was a professional photographer and had a pretty successful business. He and I lived in the same dorm, Davidson Hall. Now, that summer, Sean was hired by the Miami Herald to do some photojournalism work. So he was going to drive cross-country in his cherry-red BMW, which he lovingly named Ma Cherie, and asked me if I'd like to tag along. We were going to be like Crockett and Tubbs from Miami Vice, hitting the streets of America. I can neither confirm nor deny that there's a photo of me and Sean on the blog post for this episode dressed in our Crockett and Tubbs attire. 
Anyway, when he invited me along, I was like, hell yeah, let's do it, Crockett. So he packed up his car and headed east. Now, Berkeley is famous for being a rather liberal town in what is already a pretty progressive state. And that became evidently clear the minute we left the border. In Denver, Colorado, when at a gas station, Sean overheard one guy say to his wife, Honey, look at that white guy in that car with that nigga. That was in Denver. I had no idea Denver had racists. In Dallas, Texas, when Sean went to pay for the gas, remember, this was way before the days so we could pay at the pump, the gas station attendant asked him, Where are y'all from? Oh, we're driving out from California to Miami, Sean said as he was pulling out his money. This guy was an older gentleman, gray, messy hair, some kind of baseball cap and gray stubble. He looks over to me in the cherry red BMW, then looks over to Sean and says, Yep, it figures. Oh, it gets even better. After a 17-hour non-step drive from Flagstaff, Arizona to Memphis, Tennessee, we booked a room at Stuckey's. Now, those of you down south probably know what Stuckey's is. It's kind of like the illegitimate union of a Denny's and a Motel 6 with just a dash of 7-Eleven. Now, I'm chilling out in our room trying to catch some sleep when Sean goes to buy some food and supplies from the convenience store. The clerk is this college-age co-ed. She was probably in her 20s or so. He asks her for her opinion about directions to Florida. Hello there, miss, he says. My friend and I were driving down to Florida, and we're trying to decide if we should go through Louisiana and cross over through the south or take a more direct route through Georgia. Now mind you, she hasn't seen me yet. I'm still back in the room trying to grab some Z's. So she answers, Oh, I think you'd like it much better if you go down through Georgia. Sean says, Really? Huh? Why do you say that? You see, I'm a photographer and I hear the swamps and the trees down in Louisiana are really beautiful. I'd love to get some photos of them. She replies, Yeah, they are, but trust me, you're going to want to go through Georgia. But why, Sean insisted. She then leans in, looks around, and whispers to him, Truth is, ain't too many of them damn blacks through Georgia. (laughs) Sean was like, Okay, thank you. He goes back to the room and just starts cracking up as he tells me, you're not going to believe this. This one takes the cake. I mean, it was like this throughout our entire trip through the South. At one point, a group of young black teenagers had passed us and flipped us the bird. Another time, Sean wanted to visit this girl he had met on a cruise the summer before who happened to live in Memphis. I had to weigh out in the car so they could prepare her parents that a black guy was going to be coming into their home. I kid you not. I swear, that cross-country trip was like traveling back in time, 30 years. And here's the thing. I was shocked, literally shocked, at the amount of racism that I encountered. I thought to myself, what the hell is going on? This was 1987 for crying out loud. It was such a huge eye-opener for me to see and experience that kind of racism. I just never did experience anything like that growing up where I did. I literally thought that kind of racism only existed in the movies. Although, I do have to admit, I mean, come on. You got a black dude and a white dude driving through the South and a candy apple red BMW dressed like Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas from Miami Vice, you're going to get some looks. 
fast forward just over two decades to the summer of 2010, I'm sitting in McDonald's with my then 15-year-old daughter, Imani, and my five-year-old son. She's telling me how she felt after watching Chris Rock's documentary, Good Hair, and the experiences she's telling me are like reruns of my own life in many ways. And I wasn't even biracial. It was killing me I didn't have a camera to record her thoughts and feelings. It was then that I committed to making a movie about her story. As you know by now, it would be seven months later in January of 2011 when I'd actually interview her for the film. This is an uh, MIA interview with Imani. Hi, my name is Imani Dawson. I'm 16 years old and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. So, this first question, uh, when was your first memory you were different from your mother? I don't think I even remember the first time that I realized that I was different than my mom. After all this time, I finally wrote down what was a 45-minute interview to this 11-minute film. And my group of friends, I am the token black girl. Like, pretty much always in my life, I've been that way. In early March of this year, I finished a rough cut of the film, and I sent it to a select group of friends and colleagues. And as you might have guessed, J.D. and Yolanda were two of the people I sent it to. What you're about to hear is a poignant excerpt from my full conversation with them regarding their feedback on the film. And part two will cover some very specific feedback on creative decisions I made and the lessons I learned with regards to those decisions. That episode will be more about the filmmaking aspect of the project. But I felt it was important for a film like this to spend some time on the greater existential topics of race and culture. They play such a huge role in the motivations behind the filmmaker, i.e. yours truly, and they also play into how audiences will respond to the film. Here's another brief clip, and then we'll go into a part of my conversation with J.D. and Yolanda. And you know, I wish that I did have that thing, so whatever it is, just so I could feel like I belong there, but it's the way they communicate. I mean, not just verbally, but it's the way they do church. It's, it's in the food. Like, I, don't, I didn't understand what soul food was until I was a little older. I didn't understand weaves and stuff like that until I watched Good Hair with Chris Rock. There's a, uh, a scene in the film where Imani says, where she basically she refers to other black people as they. Like the way they do, it's the way they do church and it's, you know, the way they do the hair. And do you remember the comment you made when you had heard that? Yes. How you felt? Can you share that? I have a very interesting perspective for a whole host of reasons. When I was a child coming up, I went to a almost entirely Caucasian elementary school. Like I was always one of, you know, a handful of you know, African-American students in the school. And so my upcoming and in my world in those very formative years were very much informed by, although I was not a mixed child, I was a child of another race surrounded by a race that was not mine. And so when that happens to a child, you know, you see the world in the images that are around you. And so that informed how I grew up. And then now I'm married to a biracial man. One of my dearest friends when I was a young girl was a biracial girl who, um, you know, lived in the same um, neighborhood that I lived in. And so I almost feel like I grew up as an African-American child 
who felt somewhat other than African-American. So I can relate to uh, many biracial or multiracial people in feeling like somehow they are other than the culture that they are immersed in. Right. So I have that empathy. I've now become an adult and I am an African-American woman and over the course of schooling and, you know, various other ways have now been much more immersed in African-American culture and, you know, just experience life and racial politics in the country, et cetera, et cetera. So that informs where I am from a political and philosophical standpoint now. So as I was listening to Imani and she was, you know, talking about some African-American girls or uh, some friends, maybe people at school, and she continued to use the term they. And just my initial reaction to that, when someone says they, typically, unless it's kind of a uh, a completely objective conversation about any, th- any subject matter, mm-hmm. someone says they when they're talking about people that are not them. And so my visceral response to that was that Imani does not see herself in the community of African-American women. Now, I know you personally, I know Imani personally, and I know that her speaking and what her intention behind it was far more complex than that, and that was not the intent. However, me not knowing her and me just being a listener and hearing that and having that wash over me it's Mm off-putting just because there are plenty of times in the world and society where African-American women are, for lack of a better term, ostracized and deemed as not beautiful, all kinds of complex things. And, and, and told that for whatever host of reasons, you are a problematic person. And what happens a lot of times too, and you you know, the mainstream culture may not be familiar with the term crabs in a barrel, but some of the reactionary responses to what ends up being racial politics is, and even this also goes to gender politics as well, as mm-hmm. where females, people of color will try and advance themselves somehow on the pecking order so as to be more acceptable by the mainstream. So me being somebody who doesn't know Imani and just hearing it, my reception of hearing it might be to say, well, this girl doesn't even think she's black or she, you know, she's saying they as if she's not black or, you know, that kind of thing. It also has historical context, too, because, right, right. I mean, the light-skinned blacks were kept in the house, and then you had to feel Negroes out working, the, you know, the yard or whatever. And so they're, they're, in the black culture, there's this undercurrent that, you know, especially me, because I'm like Ralph Ellison. I could pass. I'm like the invisible man. I'm light-skinned. And I could pass, you know. And so mm-hmm. I, I believe there's this uh, attitude or vibe in our culture where it's like when, when you start using the word they a lot, you got to just be careful because then it's like you start getting into area of like, oh, she thinks she's better than us. And it's so it's so very unfortunate because mm-hmm. it's so complex and so complicated and it's so insidious in the culture and it and it dates back hundreds and hundreds of years coming out of you know the atrocity and the tragedy and the legacy of slavery unfortunately you know it's just like slavery which then trans you know transitioned into Jim Crow era and all of these things and 
you know, you have a whole culture and swath of people who are trying to find a way to survive that atmosphere in the country or the world. The legacy, yeah. Yeah. So I have one primary thought as it relates to the, like, when her use of the word they. I mean, each person's response to it is going to be based on their own experiences so yeah there is you know as jd kind of mentioned earlier like there's no right or wrong there's no right or or wrong way a person is going to respond to this like there's an easy remedy for it too i mean in the in the p just however say something now like addressing the they use of they i mean well i'm going to get to that too because i i I asked her uh, Mm -hmm. about that comment perfect i'm glad you did yeah 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 yeah. i also because i also said i would i very much also did not want you to change or censor you know, what she was saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, particularly for a documentary like this, you don't want to, you don't want to change something that someone said just to make the people right. who watch it feel better. Exactly. Um, but here's the thing. So just taking the context of what she was saying in the piece, outside mm-hmm. of all the gender politics and the racial politics and the uh, skin tone politics that happen uh, in society, it's established she was raised by a white mom. So she it's established to some extent that, you know, it's quite possible she may have had a childhood similar to the one you described, yo. And she makes it clear that it was in watching Chris Rock's movie that she discovered this aspect of the African-American culture that she had never known before. So I think some of the they things that you guys were commenting on come from people who truly are on the outside of like basically, you know, white folk or other people who kind of look at, you know, black people as as the they or within the African-American community, the way that light skin and dark skin blacks relate to one another. And maybe they refer to one another as they. But this is clearly someone who is commenting about an experience where she's coming, for lack of a better word, out of a place of ignorance where this isn't something she was ever exposed to. She doesn't know it. She hadn't seen it. It was something that she's actually in awe of. I mean, you can tell from her words that she likes it. I mean, when she says it's the way they do church and the food and everything, you don't get the impression that she's denigrating those things. You get the impression she's actually impressed by those things. And then she goes on later to say how she thinks dark skin women are beautiful. And so, yep. so I think within the context of the piece, I can understand where, like, in general, uh, her comments about they could be off-putting. For me personally, again, each person's response is going to be different based on their own experiences. Even in my hearing it and the way I edit it in terms of things that she said, I got it as here's a person who is caught between cultures, white and black. And for a good part of her youth, um, she was probably merely surrounded by non-blacks and so discovering this aspect of a side of her race and her culture that she hadn't seen before she was in awe and so it would almost be weird if she were to say anything other than they like if she would say you know it's the way if she were to say you know it's the way we do church and it's the way we do this it, it would almost wouldn't ring true because she's never been a part of that does that make sense yeah I would I would just say for the record too yeah. that I didn't have the same reaction. I was I agree with you, Lon. I hear her point, yeah. but I didn't have that reaction. I had I, I had my reaction was similar to what you just spoke of, mm-hmm. where I I thought it was very germane to the topic at hand. I mean, she was 
uh, opining on how she, you know, was, you, you know, when she would see uh, black people come into her life, she was impressed or, or engaged or, or excited. I think she said she was excited or something that, you know, she's, oh, there's another girl with curly hair like mine. I think Yolanda was just like, hey, <laughs> just get ready for trolls because they might not understand it. And, oh, sure. And, and so I would just say, like, you could also put something in at the end that maybe just clear, you know, like not even much. It would be a sentence or two that just kind of, even if she were reflective about that, her use of the word, then it would Actually, clear everything I thought, up. I, I kind of feel like maybe there's something in the editing. I don't think you need something new. Like, yeah, I think it's something in the editing where you've cut out something that she likely said that provided the pretext. Mm hmm. To what she was talking about. So right. then when she says they, you understand why she's saying they. It's amazing how one little edit can change entirely how a film is received. Here is a part of the film to which Yolanda is referring. Leading up to it is Imani talking about the African-American culture. It's very strong in that kind of community. And I don't feel like I have it. And I don't understand what it is. And because I don't understand what it is and I don't have it, it's, it's kind of hard to, for me to connect. After the feedback I got from Rolanda, as well as another person who also felt like there was something missing, this is how I re-edited it and recut the introduction to the whole they segment. I know that there is something that's very unique and specific to the African American culture, but I, feel like, I don't feel like I understand it. And... I don't feel like I have it, and I don't understand what it is. And because I don't understand what it is and I don't have it, it's, it's kind of hard for me to connect. And, you know, I, I wish that I did have that thing, so whatever it is, just so I could feel like I belong there. But it's the way they communicate. I mean, not just verbally, but it's the way they do church. It's it's in the food. Like I don't, I didn't understand what soul food was until I was a little older. I didn't understand weaves and stuff like that until I watched Good Hair with Chris Rock. After I made that change and shared the new version with Yolanda, this was her reaction. I didn't have time to get her on Skype before editing this episode, but this is what she wrote in her email: "Wow, Ron, love it, love it, love it." There's a lot of new material, visual and audio, that I feel really took the piece up a notch. Maybe I'm having a reaction to the fact that I feel like much of it went directly to the criticism I had of the draft version. I also feel like it explains and softens the word they. Takes my prior visceral reaction and criticism of the way that word comes off fully off the table. And I think it greatly informs her later statements and feelings about how she intuits her relationship with the African American community. This interview was conducted when she was 16 years old. And so one of the things that I have, um, I wouldn't say I've wrestled with is kind of too strong a term, but one of the things I've been uh, trying to figure out how to deal with is, you know, how do I make a point in this film of making it clear that the, the words that you're hearing are coming from the mouth of a 16 year old? And how does that like, if you were to see her, you would see her age, you see she was young. Again, we don't see her. So how does that inform 
How would that inform the audience's reaction to her words? Like, I think that's a big, huge point. I yeah, mean, I think it's a really big one, and yeah. that's why I don't have an opinion one way or the other about whether or not to have her have any commentary now as a 21-year-old. Right. But it's the reason why I even posited it in the first place. I, right. I think it's, you know, for contextual purposes, it's supremely important to know what's informing the opinion or the ideas and thoughts of the person who's speaking. And a huge part of that is their age. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, if you know that this is a 16-year-old talking, some of the things that she says and how she says it, you're going to respond to differently. Get it right away. Yeah. Right, right. Then if she's 21 um, or 30 or 40. Exactly, or yeah. Um, I, I can imagine it's unfair to her because it's like, again, we're t there's a vast difference between 16 and 21. And so right. for her now to kind of grapple with what you're doing right now. Right. It's been so many years since this has taken, especially in her life, that's a huge chunk of time, you know, a huge fraction of her life that it's just not like, like for me, if like, if you interview me at 16 and at 21, <laughs> right. it, or me from 21 to now, oh, I mean, yeah. it's just knucklehead, you know, just so many ways I've grown right. that you'd almost feel it's like an unfair representation. It's almost like you have to, to take hold of what you had when she was 16 and, you know, and maybe you say something. But here's the thing that's interesting. So I asked her. Um, about the whole they thing. And she said her answer wouldn't change. I mean, she's still, there's still an aspect of her that feels uh, separate and apart from both the right. white and the black community. Yeah. yeah. Um, she probably may have worded it differently, but. No, I totally get it. Me personally, I totally get that. I mean, she's the odd man out no matter where she's at. Exactly. Exactly. It's like she's, you know, if she's with all her white friends, there's still something a little bit different about her. Yeah. And she's with her black friends. Yeah, just just they, oh, something. she got the good hair. And, you know, <laughs> right, like, right. You know, uh, and, and I mean, I'm in the same boat. But because that in the current draft they have, there's a shot of her today. Yes, um, that's that. That's what I want to ask you about. That is for her from today, right? Or that is from her today. Yeah. When she's uh, looking in the mirror and putting on makeup. Well, that shot, that, well, that technically that's from a couple of years ago, but... But yeah. it's not when she was 16. Right, right. I love that shot, Ron. Uh, yeah, actually, Tazra does too, because I... So I was thinking about taking it out, because... You, dude, I think you have to, man. It, it's just, it's not fair, dude. It's a misrepresentation of every... Uh, of the stuff that's being... Uh, of the individual that's being explored at that time. Now, there was one other change that I made to the film. That first rough cut starts with Imani telling this story. When I was little, my mom gave me the nickname Little Sunshine. And I asked her why she gave me that nickname. And she said it was because I was the brightest thing in her life. Based on this conversation with JD and Yo, I thought it was really important to establish that these were the words of a 16-year-old. So I added a prologue voiceover to set the stage. Part of that VO included this clip. The words you're about to hear are from that fateful interview, recorded when she was just 16 years old. Hers is a story to which we can all relate, because no matter what color, creed, or culture you claim, we all want to belong. And from there, it goes into Imani's opening again. When I was little, my mom gave me the nickname Little Sunshine, and I asked her why she gave me that nickname, and she said it was because I was the brightest thing in her life. 
It's no secret that the issue of race relations in this country are still alive and well. Some might say that in recent years, they've reached a level not seen since the days of Martin Luther King and Stokey Carmichael. If you don't believe me, just Google Jesse Williams' speech and follow the rabbit trails of YouTube responses, blog posts, and Twitter rants. From presidential politicians to Hollywood heroes, the conversations around this provocative topic continue to bring awareness and anger to living rooms, classrooms, and even boardrooms all across the nation. Now, I've made numerous jokes and allusions to how long it's taken me to finish Mixed in America. But a part of me wonders if it's not providential that this summer, of all summers, is the one in which I finally finished the film. My hope and prayer is that telling the stories of people caught between racial and cultural worlds in a time like this can help illustrate how we are all more connected than we may think. This is the power of filmmaking, to motivate and mobilize powerful change in our communities. And this is why it's been so important for me to finish Little Mixed Sunshine. Stay tuned after the credits to hear how you can see the completed film before it goes public. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. This episode is written and produced by me, Chris Husslidge, as our co-producer. We're a proud member of the Podcastica Network. Think of it as an indie label of pop culture podcasts. From Walking Dead to Game of Thrones to comic books, this and more topics are covered at podcastica.com. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. And speaking of music, we're happy to welcome back our initial sponsor, Song Freedom. Will you need to license popular music for legal use in your video productions? Or if you need to find amazing tunes that span genres, look no further than songfreedom.com slash radio. Sign up for a new account and you'll get a free standard license worth $30. We thank Song Freedom again for their support. The opening song at the top of this episode was the instrumental rendition of A Thousand Years by Christine Perry. Courtesy of our sponsor Song Freedom, all rights reserved. You can find that, the vocal version, and other mainstream songs from artists like The Lumineers, American Authors, One Republic, Maroon 5, and more. Just a heads up, those songs are typically only cleared for use in wedding and event videos, church videos, or personal non-commercial works, so be sure to check the license. But remember, when you visit and support our sponsors, you end up supporting the show. Another huge way you can support the show is by leaving a rating and review in iTunes. Hop on over to daredreamer.fm slash iTunes to see how. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamerfm, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. Join the conversation online at facebook.com slash radiofilmschool. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Yeah.
It's been five and a half years since I first began the journey that is mixed in America. It's been exactly six years since that first fateful conversation with my daughter that led to the making of this film. Now, the first installment of the series is finally here. And as a listener to the show, or if you're a subscriber to our email newsletter, you'll get early access to view the current version. Just head on over to daredreamer.fm slash mixed. That's M-I-X-E-D. The password is sunshine, all lowercase. After watching, there's a really short survey I'd love for you to fill out. It's only four questions. Name and email, which are both optional, a quick rating from love it to terrible, and space for you to give some specific feedback, which is also optional. It would really mean a lot to me. And being completely honest, I can take it. Thanks again for following me on this journey. There is still more left to come. Next week, we dig deep into creative decisions. See you then. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Oh.